I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking to a great songwriter, Dan Wilson, who you probably know from Semisonic, who also went on to write amazing songs with people like Adele and Taylor Swift and Dirk Bentley and Weezer and a million other people. And he's also made some beautiful solo records. And he's about to come out with a, a record where he recovers songs he wrote for those people. I think we have Dan on the phone right now. Hey, Dan. Hi, I'm on the phone right now. Is this Brian? It is. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You have a new record. Tell me about the concept of the new album, Foot Start There. Okay. Um, I have a new album called Recovered. A friend of mine gave me this idea several years ago for me to recut um, songs that I wrote with and for other people for their records, but to do my own versions of, of those songs. And my friend's only warning was that uh, I was not allowed to do an acoustic guitar busker stripped down what what she called lazy version of the record. It had to be had had to have a sonic concept. So that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was good advice too. Yeah, don't be lazy is usually good advice, I guess, even in the music industry. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I don't think laziness is really a, a tendency of yours, is it? You seem pretty innately hardworking. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I, once I've figured out how to make, make music happen, I've just tried to do it with every possible free moment, sometimes to the you know irritation of the people around me. You started out songwriting as your brother started songwriting, and the funny thing is that you said that your brother was way better at first, which is interesting because some people would be like, well, that's not my thing, that's my brother's thing, I'm just going to leave that alone. Tell me about the, you guys starting out, and, and tell me what made you persist. Well, we, my brother Matt and I got a, a guitar as a, as, a, as a joint gift, birthday gift, for each of our birthdays one summer. And we had to share it from our parents. And we learned how to play um, guitar together, and we kind of, you know, we would... Every time we'd figure out a new chord or we'd find out from somebody how to do a particular thing, we would, we would kind of show each other. And um, there was a time when, he, and, and then we always tried to have bands. We, we, in high school, we, we tried a couple times to have bands. In high school, bands are mostly about like planning your glorious future and then kicking various people out of the band. There's not a lot of actual <laughs> like rehearsing that happens. It's all about the blue sky. I, so I was once the guy band. kicked out of the band, so, you know, I... I... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. So, uh, so during that period, something, like, years on the line, we, we had been in bands for a while, and we, we formed this band, Matt formed this band, uh, Trip Shakespeare. Right. And he had just kind of cracked the code of songwriting, like what it takes to make something sound like a song and how do you how do you use your own personal experiences in a song and still make it sound like a song and i just i watched and learned from that because somehow he had sort of entered the door before i did it was a really that was a really good learning experience for me i think one of the sort of taste differences between you and your brother is that you were attracted to things on the radio and you didn't necessarily get things like Frank Zappa you want yeah. you were attracted to big choruses and hooks and when you start semisonic that was part of the idea and it, and not so much in a commercial sense but in an artistic sense maybe in a, a little bit of a commercial sense but tell me about that well I had loved the Beatles when I was a kid and Carol King and, and things that were pretty 
pretty um, pop, but had a lot of strong songwriting bones in them, you know. And when uh, maybe later on, I would idolize bands like Husker Du or um, Big Star or even The Replacements, which always seemed to me like they should be huge pop smashes. You know, they should they should have been like at the top of the charts. It just happened to be that they, they weren't. So even the even the artists that I admired that, that weren't big, they weren't obscure because they wanted to be obscure. They just didn't happen to be big. Right. And so with, with Semisonic, I just wanted to like make music that was that was like that. That was like Big Star and uh, Replacements and just like really melodic and and really concise and loud. And I liked the idea of trying to to make a hit, even though I didn't really, um, I wasn't counting on it. The drummer of that band, uh, Jacob Schlichter, if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. uh, wrote mm-hmm. one of my favorite rock books, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, uh, yeah. So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. And yeah. it, you know, it, it goes through a few things. It, it goes through kind of what it was like to be in a major label band in that now vanished era where labels had some money, but sometimes frustratingly would not like sort of direct that money in your, in your promotional direction. And also just how frustrating it could be to deal with that system. And there's a f- sort of famous bit in that book where he notices that you and the other guys are just like sitting at different tables, eating a meal and not talking to each other. And what was that all about? <laughs> I remember that conversation. Well, uh, John and I had been in Trip Shakespeare. The bassist in the band and I had been had, uh, in Semisonic had been in Trip Shakespeare. We had been on the road for like seven years already. The the, the um, our mix engineer uh, was the same person. You know, our, we had also toured with our tour manager. So it was, it was like this group of people that were already kind of jaded. And then Jacob the drummer joined the band, never having gone on tour. And I think he expected a kind of like jovial uh, party and kind of nonstop camaraderie. And so that the, the scene in the book that's so striking is that we all go into like a, a roadside like diner or, or fast food place and everybody, instead of going, this is early in our trips, you know, everybody, instead of going to one big table and sitting together and having a loud, rowdy conversation, everyone went off to their own little singleton table. And uh, or two seater, and Jacob joined me and said, "What, you know, is it always this cold and alienating?" And I, I told him. He claims that I didn't even look up from his from my soup that I was drinking or eating, and I said, "Yeah, you get used to that coldness, and eventually you learn to embrace it." <laughs> and I didn't. It was not reassuring to him. <laughs> but it's something about the. There's a melancholy aspect to being a, to being a road warrior. It's 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 uh. It's lonesome even when you're surrounded by people, and I know that's kind of a cliche, but I think he figured it out later, and we learned to laugh about that story. His book is amazing. It's super funny, and as you know from reading it, and it's really, um, it's like a, a snapshot of, of a certain time in the music business. How frustrating was it for you to be dealing with a label that could, you know, maybe decide to promote your record, maybe say, go record another one, maybe dis- be disappointed mm. when you, quote unquote, only sell two million copies of your hit album? Like, right. How frustrating was all that for you and how did it affect you? I kind of understood some of those poli- politics that were going on. I mean, I understood them, but what I mean is I, I kind of plugged into that. I, I kind of, it kind of touched me. Um but every time the label gave us a bunch of money to go into the studio and record, like a budget, I just felt like I'd won the lottery. Huh. And uh, 
you know, I don't know if I was just sort of naively assuming that success would come our way and that it would all be fine, or or if I am such a muso that I uh, I didn't really get that wound up when, you know, the labels, you know, stopped promoting some record. Instead of bringing it, like, to, to the moon, they would only sort of bring it into orbit. I just always felt really lucky about where we ended up, and I was... I'm a kind of a spacey person, so I was always just thinking about songs, and you know, everybody learned to not talk to me about the frustrations of success and the ups and downs because I just, I either brushed it off or changed the subject or wouldn't allow them to say anything. I just was so focused on making sounds. But, I mean, luckily for me, Jacob wrote this great book that kind of captured both sides of it, and it's almost like I got to have a memoir that I didn't have to <laughs> take the trouble to write. On Semisonic's a final album all about chemistry, you had a collaboration that I think pointed the way to the future in some ways, and it was called uh, One True Love, and maybe we can hear a, a little bit of that. All above me the stars are bright And the sweet suburban breezes blowing And, and that was written with, uh, with Carole King. So how, right. how did that happen? What was it like? And what did you learn from it? Well, um, the way the session with Carol happened was by happenstance. It was, it was uh, my manager, uh, Jim, was talking to my publisher, John, about something, um, so, some business matter. And uh, John, my publisher, had to put Jim on hold. And he came back on the line and 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 said, uh, "Hey, would 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 Dan like to write a song with Carol King? She's on the other line and she likes his song." And uh, <laughs> my manager Jim like instantly forgot about the business that he was trying to negotiate with the publisher, and he said, "Yeah, and Dan would like that. She's his musical hero." So John got you know the publisher got back on the other line and said, "Yeah, Carol, you want to write a song with Dan Wilson?" And we set it up. And I was super excited because I really had held her up as the kind of pinnacle of collaboration. And I just loved her song so much. So we set up a session for me to write with, with Carol. And I brought a couple of ideas. And um, we got together. I was really nervous. But she she kind of put me at ease in a, in a pretty amazing way. She She was very calm and funny. She didn't. I said some dumb things and she called me on them. Uh, so she wasn't like <laughs> unfailingly nice. You know, if I said stupid things, she said, no, that's not correct. But uh, on the other hand, she was really funny and she made me real comfortable. And we ended up writing uh, beginnings of two songs and then we, and we also wrote uh, One True Love. I had a chorus that was incomplete and I, and I sang it for her and she said, yeah, I love that. And then she... Um, sang the melody for the verse immediately, like without even pausing. She said, maybe the verse could go like this. And she started singing and playing the piano. And the piano part already had this little um, clockwork riff that, that we still had on the album. And the melody was all there, and it just like popped out. And that was in itself kind of a, a learning experience, because I, I saw how spontaneous you could be with somebody else and Mm. She, you know, she put me at ease, but also there were a couple times when she said, how about this? And she'd sing something and I'd say, maybe something different. And she'd go, okay, what about that? And she would just, <laughs> she would just like throw out these ideas. All of them were pretty cool, like one after the other. And I learned a ton from that. Jumping ahead a, a few years, I, I think one of your 
earliest and biggest collaborations was with the Dixie Chicks. You wrote or helped them write a bunch of songs on uh, Taking yeah. the Long Way, which, which was their so far final album, unfortunately. Hopefully there'll be another mm, one. Yes. But on your new album, you do a version of uh, Not Ready to Make Nice. Uh, let, let's hear first the Dixie Chicks version and then Dan's version. Now Dan's version, which is uh, has its own feel. Forgive sounds good. Forget. Dan, tell me about that whole experience. Uh, You know, this is something you've talked about a bit, but how did it come about, first of all, and and how much did you have to get used to the idea of working in the country world at first? I'll answer the second part first. I I had started going down to Nashville to write in, like, maybe 2002. It just seemed like that was the place in the world where people looked at songwriting as a craft you could learn and get better at. And it it was very collaborative, and I was interested in writing with other people. And there was a kind of reverence almost that um, country music had about songwriting that, you know, pop, um, almost in country, they don't mind the the idea that you can pull the curtain open a little bit and and show the songwriter. And pop is a little more interested in just keeping the, it's all about the smile and beautiful skin and, you know, kind of uh, the the shining sound of it. In in country, they they, they, they let the, the... the writer be part of the story. And and anyway, I was attracted to all that. And I went down every six months or so for a while. And I learned a ton. I didn't write any country hits with people, but I had some great hangs. And I learned a lot about the kind of uh, Nashville way of writing a song. It's, it's, you get together, you hang out, you talk about, I don't know, life or family or uh, whatever is happening, you know, in your own personal life. And, People share starts. They said, do you have any starts? And, you know, you might play like a few chords and a, a melody that you thought of, or someone might have a f- clever title. In Nashville, it's probably a pretty common occurrence. Someone have a really funny title. Hmm. And you sort of then kind of glide naturally into writing a song after that. So I kind of got trained in on that kind of Nashville way of writing a song, which has been really incredibly valuable for me. And then um, the way I met the Dixie Chicks was that... Uh, Rick Rubin and I were working on an album of mine. He was producing tracks for me, and I was producing tracks in Minneapolis, and we were comparing notes and, uh, you know, just having an amazing, for me, like an amazing learning experience for, from one of the great masters. And uh, he introduced me to the Czechs, and he basically said to them and me, I think you uh, all could write some really special, important music together. So that was our kind of introduction and we got together it was after they had been blacklisted uh, by country radio because they had criticized the bush uh, administration's war in iraq and uh, they they spoke out uh, natalie the singer spoke out against it and they were quickly taken off the radio entirely it was actually kind of amazing how effective the blacklist was it was a pretty big deal yeah it was a big deal and they lost their you know they lost they they were off the charts off the air shut down and so this record that I got brought in to work on with them was almost their like response or their the next thing everybody heard from them after that sort of disastrous incident. So we got together in, in LA and, and just wrote a bunch of songs including Not Ready to Make Nice, which felt like it 
kind of encapsulated at least the emotional response to the whole thing. It kind of encapsulates it. Something I think you've said, and even Natalie Maines once joked to me about. Natalie Maines' is sort of like semi derisive joke about country songwriting would be if James Taylor wrote Fire and Rain as a country song, but just say, I'm in a mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the way that you once put it is in country music, if in doubt, just come out and say it. So I think it's this. <laughs> so in other words, it's very explicit about what it's about, that song, you know? Yeah. I'm not ready to make nice. It's pretty. That's closer to uh, I'm in a mental hospital than um, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. It's not <laughs> metaphorical. And I think, that, I think you know, in a way, um, you've got to have both of those things in your, in your arsenal. And Natalie's right in some ways, but sometimes a good song can be very, very plain and direct, and other times it can almost be nonsensical and still have a lot of emotion in it. So it kind of can work both ways. And what did you learn from them specifically in the process of, of that album? First of all, we had a great time working. And they're extremely respectful, demanding artists, but also like just great, respectful collaborators. And so it was a really positive experience. And sometimes if you're just speaking freely, you might say, well, why don't we say this? And, <laughs> you know, why don't we say that? And they, and if, they, if it went against their like principles or their sense of like what the, you know, particularly Natalie, but all three of them really, they would go, no. I'm not going to say that. Like, I'm, you know, uh, like very, like very direct, and in a way, kind of like it gets it over with. You, you, you throw out an idea, they say no, but it's not like um, shutting you down. It's just like no, that, that's not how we feel. They can just tell when something is speaking truthfully. They have a great like smell test or something for for truthfulness. Natalie did a lovely version of your song "Free Life" on on her soul album. Yeah. Um, heartrending, actually. <laughs> but yeah. do you think they'll ever make an album together again? I wonder because I'm sort of some some in the public eye because of my albums, and somewhat in the background because of my songwriting. <laughs> I kind of see things both ways, and I, um, you know, back in semi-sonic days, I would have the occasional lunatic who would be following me. Mm. Uh, or like, you know, saying really uh, alarming, dangerous things in, you know, emails and stuff like that. Um, and everybody would focus on that person. It would be like, oh, okay, this really dangerous sounding fan is going to show up at this particular show, you know, and everyone, would, and, and it seemed scary, and it was. But now it's a very different time. You You don't get like a handful of those people. You get like, 10,000 of them. Hmm. If you say something uh, cheeky or uh, politically unsettling or, you know, especially for a woman, I think, the trolling is like, it's now a profession, you know, so you, the, the amount of negativity that comes rolling in at somebody now is just like magnitudes more than it used to be. And the, and the power structure is still there for everybody that was in charge when they got blacklisted is still kind of in charge. So I, I don't know if that's very appealing to them. But I sure hope they make a record. I, I love them. And Among your other hit collaborations, and a lot of them are with women, uh, it's just a thing, I don't know, hmm. um, yeah. was Adele, uh, Someone Like You, which, yeah. you know, is a song that specializes in making people cry, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so... So tell me about sitting down with Adele 
you know, I've, I've spent time with her. She's such a big personality and mm. so funny. And I actually can really imagine how it's very fruitful and easy to, to collaborate with her because she's kind of a generous, like conversationalist and a lot of give and take. So was it a, a particularly natural and easy kind of collaboration? Yeah. I mean, let's see, we got together in uh, a very small studio in, in uh, Hollywood and um, I had already been a fan of her music so we had we had stuff to talk about. Also, she she was so excited. She played me a bunch of uh, YouTube clips of Wanda Jackson, the rockability queen yeah. in the '50s, and she was just so like fired up about making sure that I saw these these clips of this you know very very electric performer from way back when. And it was really in the end when I look back on it, it was like really disarming. You know, it just got it just got us both in this kind of super fun appreciative frame of mind and and um you know she was showing me something that she felt like everybody needed to see you know and uh that in itself was kind of selfless and 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 enjoyable so then when it came time to write a song she she told me she wanted to write a song about this breakup that she'd had and she told this story briefly about how how devastating it had been and how many songs on the record seemed to touch on this this um, heartbreak that she had suffered. Then she sang me the first couple uh, lines that she had, which were, you know, exactly what we hear, the first three lines or so of the record. And it almost, we went from like laughing and, you know, it's kind of screaming with appreciation at Wanda Jackson straight into like, sort of working on this song that seems so incredibly personal and, and so um, heartfelt. And it was just so, it just seemed so easy. She just has that natural gift of rapport. And like you said, give and take, she listens when people talk. She, you know, she's a, like, she's a social, she's got a social genius as well as a, mm. a musical genius, you know, and she, she, she makes people feel good when they're with her. So it, it made it feel great to write with her and she laughs you know she's got that crazy cackle yes so if you made a good particularly good or wicked remark <laughs> and she cackled it was so gratifying you know? let's hear adele's version and then uh, the very brave fact that dan did his own version so let's start with adele's and uh, go from there that settle down that you And now let's hear Dan's own version of Someone Like You. I heard that you're settled down, that you found someone and you're married now. So Dan, it's an interesting challenge, and I I like your version very much. It's an interesting challenge, though, to take on... Uh, you know, a, a ver- something you wrote with a virtuoso singer and yeah. then just find a version of it that's valid. How, how much did you struggle with that kind of issue of it? Not that you're not I a did. good singer, but you know what I mean? I hear you. No, like, well, she has this, she, she's got an instrument, you know, and just that emotional connection, both. And her instrument is, you know, part of what makes her great is the way she holds back 
from her instrument. Like she has, she almost never in her songs gives you the full force of her voice. There's always a little bit held in check. And mm. that gives you this kind of almost like makes it tense. Like when she finally sings the chorus, never mind. It's like she, she's given you 90% at that point and you know there's more and it could be even more devastating. And there's something powerful about that. And I've never had that kind of voice. My, I sound like a person's talking to you, which is a, which is a virtue in itself. When I sing, I sound like I'm someone talking to you. Mm. It just happens to have notes. And I, I, because I couldn't ever do an Adele impression, at least I was saved from the risk <laughs> of trying to be Adele, you know, on the record. And I was forced to just find my own way of like what, what emotion sounds right when, when I sing it and you know, how, how can I get into that as opposed to like, I'm not going to go toe to toe with Adele. That would be crazy. You know, she's the best singer in the world or among the five, you know? <laughs> so, so instead, like I just had to, I, my producer, Mike Viola really helped me with all these, all these recordings because he was very focused on, it's all about capturing the moment and we're recording the two-inch tape, and we're not going to mess around with it afterwards, and it's going to be very kind of uh, direct and spontaneous, and we're going to just be true to what the song needs right now. And that helps me also to not think, oh, I'm, I'm trying to make an eternal classic version to rival you know, the original. I wanted to talk about arrangements and production versus songwriting for a second because yeah. so many people who do what you do, especially the the Swedish guys, <laughs> are ah. are sort of producer songwriters. Um, right. There is much involved in the sort of sonics and arrangement of the record as the song, and and for the most part, you 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 do the song part. Why? And is that ever something that you feel like? you're ceding too much control like you're only the screenwriter and not the director and you want to be the director if you know what I mean yeah um, well I have a lot of admiration for the kind of Swedish producer writers that are big now um, there's a kind of it's like very rigorous it's like the melody has to be perfect and have little sort of treats and startling twists and turns you know in the and the production is, I think a lot of times the Swedish style is to, is to do something at the same time sort of very familiar and typical, but also try to bring in new flavors or new kind of threads that other people are working on, like to, to make sure that things are, are not just the same Backstreet Boys record over and over again for decades, <laughs> you know? But um, for me, like, what appeals to me more is just getting into writing words and melody with somebody with just one instrument and not really going into the arrangement until it's all said and done, uh, until the, the, the last lyric has been written. And I, it's, it's, it's kind of a, I kind of feel like the best songs can be played at the campfire if you're like, you know, camping in Joshua Tree or something. You should be able to like play a great song on a cheap guitar around a campfire uh, at night and everybody would still get the full kind of uh, message of the song. And that leads me to almost write songs as though I'm already around a campfire with one <laughs> You know, and sometimes it's a piano. You can't bring a piano to a campfire, but you know what I mean? There's something like 
real portable and real basic about what I like to do most in songs. And sometimes I, I, you know, I wish that I was more focused on production sometimes when I hear some record that's like, you know, some records by the weekend. Mm. I think, oh man, these are like just every little texture is so perfect, you know, and every little twist and turn of the instrumentation is amazing. And, I love that. It's just not what I focus completely, focus my energy on. So I am not going to make this the one interview where you get away without n- not talking about closing time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but you see, it's actually on your new album, so we really have to talk yeah. about it. And th- I mean, yeah. I, I do know that you know some people have this like ambivalent relationship with their kind of huge hit song. It doesn't really seem like you have that with this song. No, I don't have any ambivalence about it. It was like a lucky break. You know, like just a, a a beautiful thing that happened at a, at the right time for me. It's funny because on the on the cover of the new album, my, my initial when I had the conversation with my friend who suggested the idea, the idea was I was going to include songs that I wrote with other people for their their records, and uh, I, put, I put together a big list of songs and and went through this whole process and then never did include closing time. And, uh, uh, you know, Mike Viola and I went back and forth about it. And um, my thought was it just didn't quite fit that rule that I set up, that it was just, you know, recovered. It's about covering songs that other people had covered of mine, you know. And then when, I would, when we got really far along um, with the record and had like a working sequence, I would play it for my friends or I'd send copies to people that I loved and, and ask them what they thought. And they all said, why isn't closing time on here? <laughs> and I would say, well, because it didn't fit the rule that I set up. And, and they would say, well, that's kind of weird. People are going to wonder why it's not on the record. <laughs> and I, like, I realized that I needed to kind of suspend my, strict definition and and, I, and then I realized what you know it's like an incredibly important part of the story so I kind of have to put it on and uh you know in the end I'm really happy that that and Mike was supportive of putting it on the record too he wanted this version to be as different as possible from the version that everybody knows and I think that was a, a wise instinct so we just had me you know playing piano and Daniel Clark playing keyboards in the background and that's it and uh so it definitely has a, a, a real different um kind of spirit i can't be grateful enough for that song well, let's hear the new version for a second closing time open all the doors and let you out into the you do have a, a tendency towards uh, melancholy, I would say, in, in, in your song. <laughs> yeah. And it, this version was, it's pretty tear-jerking, actually, <laughs> I think. <laughs> a few things came to mind. One of them is, you know, the original version is very much, arrangement-wise, a, a product of that sort of 90s modern rock era and w- with some yep. sort of Nirvana-esque tricks in the arrangement, w- wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were, I mean, we loved, we loved Nirvana and the Pixies, and we loved that uh, soft, loud, soft, loud kind of thing. We, but we, you know, we couldn't help but have our own um, that sort of electronic sort of sounds in the background, and the, the string breaks. It sounded like some movie from the '40s. <laughs> it was very, very much uh, our quirks in action. But yeah, I agree. It, 
definitely has that 90s modern rock vibe. But when I hear Closing Time now, uh, what strikes me is is uh, some things that I didn't really even notice at the time, like the beginning of the song, the initial guitar, it's, you know, it's a huge, it's a, a, a Les Paul into a Marshall stack, but it's kind of twangy. It's got this kind of... Um, I don't know, it's got this kind of like down-home twang in the way those guitar chords work at the beginning. And the piano also uh, sounds like a parlor piano. It's an upright piano, and it's kind of thin, and, and it, you know, it's, it's not uh, grand. It's not a grand-sounding grand. It's kind of a plinky kind of... It sounds like someone playing, you know, in a pizza parlor, that kind of a old-timey piano. There's some things about the sound of it that are kind of... That are kind of um, that have their own kind of sort of nostalgia almost built in. And when the song first came out, people would say, you know, it's a great song, but why do you sound so sad? What's so sad about the bar closing? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I don't know <laughs> why it sounds that sad. I don't, I don't understand that either. <laughs> and of course, it's about more than that, legendarily, I guess, at, the, by, yeah. at this point. Do you remember in the process of writing when you got to the chorus and was that very quick in the process or did it take a while to, to get there or were there different choruses that you tried? How did that, all that work? That song was, um, I had been writing so many songs at that time. I had been writing dozens of songs. Uh, I was just in a mode where everything, everything was a song. Every remark anybody made, I turned into a song that afternoon. <laughs> you know, it was, was like relentless and fun. And, that song, um, I sat down on a couch in my living room with a with an acoustic guitar and a, and a notebook, and I wrote seventy five percent of it in about twenty minutes. Wow! And it just kind of popped out. I have the notebook. Like the first couple of lines uh, took a minute, I think, but no more than twenty minutes to, to happen to happen um, correctly. And then um, there was no bridge until I. Uh, and it's just an instrumental bridge, but I didn't think of that key change until I made a demo with uh, John and Jake in uh, John's base in John Munson's basement. Finally, my A and R guy, who had been uh, mad at me over and over again that my songs were too complicated, <laughs> told me that this, told me that this one was too simple, and could I just make one line different from all the rest? <laughs> and so uh, it just for some variety. So I I changed the third line of the second verse. It 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 was the one that goes. So gather up your jackets, move it to the exits. I hope you have found a friend. The original version was more in keeping with all the other lines. It was closing time. Gather up your jackets. I hope you have found a friend. <laughs> so every single line was exactly the same, and I just changed it a little bit. I left the words closing time out, and I said gather up your jackets, move it to the exits. And Hans and our guy was satisfied with that. <laughs> tiny change and then literally the song was done it was like it was the you know tied for easiest song I've ever written it's all that accumulated experience can pop out in 20 minutes it's actually 20 years of work yeah. to get to that 20 minutes is the cliche um, yeah yeah I dig it but in the in the couple minutes we have left, uh, I wanted yeah. to you know ask you about Taylor Swift. You you wrote a couple songs with her. Treacherous is uh, is on your new album. You do your own version of that. What did you take away from working with her? What what was different than someone might expect, um, just based on the the popular image of Taylor Swift, perhaps? Well, uh, I've had a bunch of interactions. I'm not going to talk about the sessions in particular, but I've had a lot of interactions with Taylor um, in different places, and she is 
like the other artists that I've talked about, um, a res- respectful, funny, super insightful, um, positive, you know, directed kind of person. She's, I've seen her, um, at the meet and greets after gigs and she is like, treats the, the little children that, you know, want to meet her with this incredible, uh, gentleness and, and respect. And it's, you know, it's, that's very telling. I, I feel like our, the songs we wrote, like, um, I, I think Treacherous is an amazing song and it's sort of funny because it, because of the structure, it's like not, it's not shaped like a hit. Right. Like it has, it has these bridges that get out of hand. They're, they're like, they they make too, they almost make too much of themselves, the bridges. And <laughs> at the same time, you know, it's, it's, I felt like artistically it was like totally the right way to go. So it was interesting to write a song that has all the right artistic moves and isn't necessarily like geared towards being a smash and, and still have that be the, you know, have it turn out so well. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We've been lucky enough to talk to Dan Wilson about his life in songwriting. He has a new album called Recovered coming out really soon. Dan, thanks for being here. My pleasure. We'll be back next week on Friday at 1 p.m. on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, download us as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast and also leave us a nice review if you can on iTunes. And we'll see you next week. 